welcome to the mini-sode of Here for Good. This time around, Greg and I are going to talk about the different episodes that we've had so far, some of our favorite highlights, what they make us think of, and other whatever else comes up to, up to mind. So we're going to be talking about the episodes um, that, get, that our special guest features were Chris Lawrence, Amanda Ashcraft, Sean Deja, Katie Mack Thompson, and Bonnie Osai Freem Pong. So those are the ones we'll be talking about for this mini-sode, plus whatever else comes our way. Okay, let's start with Chris. So Chris talked a lot about this idea of super local, super micro church. And whenever I've talked to him in person, I felt like he's speaking my language and clearly he understands the idea of neighborhood-based ministry and rootedness. And he's also experiencing um, gentrification in East Harlem. And so the thing that really stands out for me in our conversation is this idea that if we're raising people into a way of abundance and community life, we've got to have a place for them to come back to because they're, you know, in the ideal world, they're going to be so compelled to come back and to be a part of the community, we hope, that that we have to have a place for them not only just in not only in leadership and you know in those kinds of ways ownership of what's happening but literally right now right, actual physical space yeah like there's not enough space physically for people to live together and it makes me also think about how in working with people who are poor i chose a life of downward mobility or simple living however you want to put it and that was very important to me but I don't want to like put I don't want to project that onto our kids that we work with or the neighbors I don't want them to feel like they have to live out those values Mm -hmm. I want them to be able to pursue what it is that they want to pursue and it makes me think about how if if I if I actually do the thing that I'm hoping to do which is to raise up and live within and work within a community to the point where abundance is actualized, then it may be that we lose our our people that we've devoted all of this time and energy into because either they're pursuing their dreams that aren't mine, which is fine, or they they or the societal things that keep them from being able to stay around. So it's like this both and thing of wanting relationship wanting people to be around investing in a community but the the makeup of that community is always threatened whether it be good things that are happening that make for kind of the neighborhood changing or or the people moving away from whatever they have um, lived in before or it might be because it's changing in a way that they can't stay so that sticks out to me with the way that he was talking about. Yeah, yeah. So the, there has to be, um, there has to be the physical space, the infrastructure, you might say, to enable the kind of community you're talking about. There also has to be the spiritual space or the hospitality to welcome folks to come and go as they need to. But if you don't have both of those, then you can't have the fullness of community that you're hoping for. Yeah. 
It also makes me feel like I really have an appreciation for this this idea of decentralized leadership. And I think that long-term, ideally, in a place of abundance, where abundance grows um, and flourishes, that decentralized leadership will be actualized. But when we start to say, you know, have the openness for people to come and go, it feels like there needs to be something, and to me, someone that stays the same. So then, then I get into founders mode. Where it's like the one that <laughs> right. has to stay the same for in my mind is me. Right. And so everybody else gets to come and go, but I don't get to. And I don't think that's really like that's certainly not the way of abundance. But it's I haven't been able this is something that I've struggled with. It's not something that I've figured out yet. Well, I think to a certain extent everybody has to be able to chase their dreams. Right. So so you wanna create the kind of space where we're helping form people to form their imaginations of themselves and where they're headed and to do so within limits that make good sense for the earth and for communities. Um, but you want people to, to dream big and to have the space to pursue their own expectations of themselves without um, feeling held back by a community in, a, in sort of a parochial sense that um, you know, your, your community is holding you back. But I think the, the best stories, um, the most fulfilling stories, are the ones where folks are returning and where they're continuing to participate in the places that, um, that raise them and that form the dreams that they have for themselves. Yeah, I talk about a lot of times when people say, what kind of difference are you making? How are you succeeding... Like, how are you succeeding in your dream of what's possible? And a lot of times the answer is, I don't know. And also, the next thing I think of is, I'm just hoping that my children are going to turn out all right. <laughs> like, I'm just hoping that, you know, the little glimpses that I see where they're making different decisions or they think a different way is going to be what makes a change. So maybe it doesn't, it doesn't happen. I mean, it's always happening now and then, but... Maybe it's going to happen more fully once they are able to pursue the dream. But also the dreams that we that we have to um, build the imagination for are dreams that live outside of the world of extraction mm -hmm. and totalism, which is hard because we live inside the world of extraction. And well, so, so and as Shonda was talking about in the, the time you spent with her, um, we seem to be at the threshold of a generational movement. So the, the timeline that the changes that we hope for um, could possibly come about is measured in decades, like multiple decades, and, uh, and in lifetimes, and not necessarily in a couple of years here or there. So it's hard to be patient with that, especially when you feel like you can taste the possibility that's in front of us. Um, but it, but it still is impossible to realize it outside of the small little glimpses here and there that we get that keep us moving towards the work. Yeah, I don't know when we can pinpoint when a movement begins and when it ends until we're way past it. And then still it's sort of this nebulous amoeba. I'm just thinking about, remember, who was it? Um, there was Diana Butler Bass and that other person. 
Tribble, maybe, who was talking a lot about the emergent church. Well, that was Phyllis Tickle. Tickle. Thank you, Phyllis Tickle. And so they were talking about the emergent church and um, kind of naming. And remember, even before that, it was like the ancient future church. And people, like, is that all the same thing? Is this all just more of the same? Or is this something new? And how do those things connect? Because, I mean, if intersectionality exists within, you know, culture and identity and all the all the ways that we already acknowledge that it exists that it has to exist within these kind of I don't know what's that term like church sociological um, observances or observations so it seems like emergent strategy uh, um, the book that we have been we've quoted from Adrian Marie Brown and that I've read and really enjoyed and told everybody they need to read that that word emergence is is not new and of course there's like nothing new under the sun but at the same time is this all is this all something and then if so like I want to believe that Shonda's right that if this is a movement and it's going to come into fruition and we're going to see it happen and it's going to be within the next decades plural but at the same time what if it's not and what if it's just it's just more waves and the waves keep coming and they never stop then, you know, what do we latch on to? Do we just latch on to the current, you know? Yeah, that, that is one of the scary um, moments that we exist in because, you know, as much as we can identify um, places of hope and, um, and resistance to the, the culture of extraction and exploitation that we live in, uh, there's also this fierce um, resurgence of white nationalism and of uh, politics that are kind of veering over towards fascism on the national scene. Um, and so there's, a, there's just a lot of fear that uh, our, the, the movement towards life and health and wholeness and, and the movement that exists within the work of the Holy Spirit in the world is not the only movement that's going on at the moment. And uh, it's, it's, not, it's entirely possible that maybe we don't we don't succeed as wildly as we want to in the next several decades. Mm. Amanda was talking about that in that when she was saying that when she went to seminary and then, then even out of seminary, she was certainly living like bold, courageous, interested in alternate ideas kind of lifestyle. But at the same time, she didn't see herself necessarily as getting really politically involved or, or calling herself an activist. But in these last few, um, I don't know, she, I don't know if she named a time. In the last bit, she has sort of named that for herself. She's owned it. She's felt it within her being, I'm, I don't know that she necessarily said a, a sense of call, but that activism became a part of who she was in these moments. And so it's, it is a movement and also something that I feel like is, is um, I don't know, I, I don't know how to say that. Like, I want it to be more than a movement. I want it to have been built for a long period of time and also happening right yeah. now. Sure. Well, I, I mean, I think we have to recognize that it has been built for a long period of time as well. I mean, we come from um, ourselves, from as Baptists in the South, um, from traditions that have very divergent streams. So Clarence Jordan of Koinonia Farms and Will Campbell are some of the forebears who went before us. 
um, but so are uh, Jerry Falwell and and Paige Patterson, right? So, so within any stream or tradition, there are going to be people that are moving in um, directions for the life of the world, and there are going to be people who are moving in directions for um, power and against the the work of the Spirit in the world. So I think we have to to hold on to the hope that. Um, that we are moving in the, the best possible direction. Uh, and we have to take courage in the little points of light that we see along the way. And we also have to hold out the possibility that we're not seeing everything very clearly and that we've got to continue learning and um, seeking wisdom as we move. Bud Fisher, he says, look for the little lights. Yeah. I remember that a lot. Well, and then Shauna talked about this idea of the woke Olympics and this competition, what should you say, purity politics? Yeah. You have to get yeah. everything just right. And I think maybe even Amanda, when she would, when she said, she's almost apologetic, like, I wasn't into this until a certain point, and then I got into it. And I feel like sometimes I have to apologize because I didn't get it just right when it comes to activism or organizing. And But then I also am resentful for that. I mean, I, I want to apologize when I get it wrong. But for not getting it just right, even when you're trying to be right, is really a hard place to be because the people who are who we feel like or we or we sense are pointing fingers at us and saying like you didn't get it just right. Maybe that's an internal tape recorder. Like it could be just something that's in our own heads. But if there are people out there that are sort of pointing and saying you didn't just get it just right, it's kind of like well, you know, when did anybody get it just right? Um, but I was comforted. Shonda had suggested a book on Facebook. It was called Blueprint for the Revolution. And I start, I picked that up and started reading it, and it was kind of giving a timeline of movements um, that have been in like the recent past. And I was really comforted because I had thought that my most recent activism sort of started around the time that Trayvon Martin was killed. And I could kind of trace that timeline very clearly. But before then, it was a little hazy to me as to in what ways had I been a part of activism before that. Even though I was like a grown adult before, what year is that, 2014, 2013? So I graduated from college in 2000. So that gave me 13 years where I thought, you know, I was just like sitting around doing nothing. But then I remembered that we were, the book reminded me of the Occupy movement and also reminded me of the... Um, protest against the war on Iraq of which we were a part and so that then it sort of began to trace the lineage back to sort of this so-called activism that I participated in before now and that was kind of a nice refresher and I wonder I bet if Amanda or if any of us just was gracious enough to ourselves to say at what points have we been taking action and putting into the flesh the things that we believe that are on the side of justice that she would see and we would all see that we've been doing that work for a long time i mean even when we were in seminary and called the social justice faction because we were suggesting that everybody <laughs> eat like local donuts and like that's a very small thing we were talking about like local ingredients and local restaurants and uh, buying from local right. places but we were getting a lot of resistance about that and now we laugh about that but like we were sensing within ourselves that we couldn't just say what we believed in a conceptual way. We had to 
live it out and make it happen, not just for ourselves, but for other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this, Id- this idea of, um, of purity politics, I think sometimes um, it, it kind of works against us. There's this, this notion that w- we have to be perfect in the work that we're doing. We have to have all the right ideas. We have to be living them in just the right fashion. We have to be uh, posting the right things in the right amount at the right times to our social media accounts and so on. Um, and ultimately, I think that works against our desires to establish community um, and to establish community in ways that heal. And, and so while it's important that all of us uh, especially us as white folks who are doing our homework, um, are doing the work that we need to on ourselves. But none of us are going to get it right all the time. And so to be a part of a community that can call us in and that can welcome us even when we uh, do miss out on things uh, or where we don't get it just right or where we didn't get it right soon enough, um, that, that's the, the kind of openness that we're going to have to have one another with one another. Uh, to build uh, cultures of uh, cultures that can make a difference in a in a culture that is cruel towards uh, strangers and and towards poor people, uh, to so to build an alternative is going to require that kind of graciousness from one another. Um, it's not it's not fair to expect that or to demand it um, from other folks, but but within our local places and even within our households. That's the kind of internal work we've got to be doing so we can welcome one another. So this is going to sound really ridiculous, but in pop culture references, the one of the reasons why I love Gilmore Girls so much is that they have this band of completely quirky characters who all live in a community together. And none of them ever get it just right. They're always kind of bumbly, but they're always welcomed into conversation they're always kind of received and their bumbliness is sort of like a thing everybody loves about them or likes about them or receives in a way that says oh this is just who this person is and not in a a way of you are screwing everything up for all of us or um you're you're hurt you're harming us and not that's not real life obviously but i do think that that kind of community and it reminds me of when we were in ASU BSU like there were a bunch of silly people in that group in that organization that we were mm-hmm. part of and somehow even though none of us were cool but like we were all variations of uncool and yet we still were able to receive some kind of extreme personalities with grace and I feel like Leah and Leah McCullough and Bud Fisher really helped and Matt Fall and Chris Gamble and Nicholas Allen really helped to create an environment in which we didn't feel threatened by mistakes and we didn't feel threatened by differences and that's the thing I feel like people feel threatened they feel like their life is on the line and so they're just ready to put it to an end and if that means blaming or calling people out they're going to do it and I would say, I mean, I'm tempted to do that sometimes, too. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And, and there, I think we have to leave open the possibility that there are certainly moments where that's needed. Um, 
particularly as you talk about working around racial justice and, and economic injustice, that uh, some uh, many folks do experience on a daily basis their lives being in danger. Um, and so we have to re- we have to respect that um, and and to honor those voices and and to pay close attention to them. Yeah, but another pop culture reference, just for a quick second. There was this episode that I will never forget of Recess, the car- the Saturday morning cartoon, and the main character, I don't even remember his name, he's a little blonde, kind of roly-poly boy. Um, he was just so concerned because he was feeling within himself that that he wasn't liked. And he was he wanted to be liked by everyone. And, like, the whole episode is about him figuring out that you're not going to be liked by everyone, and that's okay. But right now, a part of, like, this, the scarcity mindset that we have been taught is that it's not okay unless everybody likes you. Because everybody liking you means that you'll have what you need. Everybody liking you means that you will be resourced. Everybody liking you means that you'll be able to climb some kind of ladders. And if you don't have everybody liking you, then those things won't happen for you. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, this can be difficult, I think, particularly for folks who are on the margins or for folks who are trying to stand on the margins with others. Um, that it feels like there's not enough of us out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in reality, there probably aren't enough of us out there. Um, and movements generate really fierce internal debates right, where uh, people who are otherwise united in their cause can fracture and splinter over what seem can seem on the outside like kind of minor things but they begin to seem really really big on the inside and so you know, part of the gift that we have to to give one another is that an expansiveness of spirit so that when those moments come um, that that we can be good uh, good to one another and good at accompanying one another even among amongst those various internal debates that that exist within movements for social change. That's tricky. I mean, I got an email today that was kind of making me feel like I needed to at least save myself or lash out or um, at least protect my leadership or stuff like that. And then how to enter into that in truth and like prophetic voice and honoring what is true and honest and with integrity, but also being gracious. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Okay. Well... That reminds me of the fart neutral zone. <laughs> so here's what I loved about um, about Bonnie's interview is that sometimes I think the most deeply spiritual uh, work that happens in the world is really built around very practical things. Um, so like the best teachers are not uh, not the ones. Uh, not the gurus who seem like they're always kind of walking six inches up in the air, right? But the best practical teaching is like their rule that um, you can always invite anybody to dinner at any time and any number of people. So, like, what a what a remarkable 
rule of Christian spirituality, that there's always room at this table for people who are invited. Yeah, it was a little bit of a conviction, because I remember when we used to have people at dinner here a lot, and it's always ebbing and flowing, but when we did, it was kind of like, y'all can eat dinner with us, that's fine, but you gotta let me know, because there are days when it feels like we don't have enough, but the truth of the matter is, we'd always have enough. It may not be altogether that well-balanced, but it'll yeah, always be enough. Right, and sometimes it didn't always taste very good, especially when you had to stretch it out twice as far. Right, but she kind of made she made some some stretch room for that with the other rules. Yeah. That it doesn't have to be delicious. Right. It just has to be relatively healthy and that there will be enough. So the it's kind of going back to to that um the, just the deep spirituality of those rules that um, it, it, again another example is that you always share water um, like what a beautiful and simple rule for how we treat one another right so and this is this is not unrelated to the woke Olympics that Shonda mentioned or the, the purity politics like, um, you know, you you just always share water, and we trust that there's enough, and we trust that uh, somehow by the working of a God who can make water come out of rocks, that um, there's going to be enough, and so we accept those gifts that every that folks offer, and we offer our gifts to one another. So, hearing her rules uh, reminded me of how deeply grounded those those guidelines are in in Christian spirituality. Amanda and Katie both have formed um, I don't know if you want to call them organizations. Amanda has formed a platform and Katie an organization around this idea of families becoming active in civic engagement. Um, Amanda is using this platform to Create a narrative by which regular people can connect to one another and then engage in um, political conversation and faith conversation that raises consciousness towards social good. Katie is creating events around which families can come together to discuss progressive family value concepts and people to be exposed to um, different politicians and civic engagement in a family-friendly kind of way in order to um, build about social good and social change in a civic engagement kind of way. And so this idea, so both of them I had wondered, you know, what would it be like if we created a curriculum or a liturgy or some kind of life style development that that raised up families to be about social good and the common good and this idea of water and that you always share water and if someone offers you water you receive it and if you ask for water the other person is to share it um, that that would really be an interesting lesson for everyone to participate in um, and also to debrief about like how did it make you feel what did, what did you learn from this 
what are the take backs here and how can that particular um, guideline for Bonnie's family how can that be um, stretched to other things the other thing I had thought about was that um, Katie and Amanda and Bonnie are all and Chris several of these folks are families that are raising like young children mm. like preschoolers and we remember what it was like to be parents of preschoolers and we're not in that space anymore and we were in a cloud of fatigue and trying to figure it out and juggling and to imagine that these people have the capacity to not only think about these things but do something about them and also incorporate their children is beyond amazing to me it is and um and again this is like the real deep grounding of our spirituality in those daily occurrences of raising children um that just small things you know whether it's changing diapers or preparing meals um, of sharing water of um, learning how to handle anger um, whether it's your anger as a parent at a recalcitrant child who just doesn't seem to want to do anything um, or helping a, a young a young person to learn how to handle their anger um, and to express it but to express it in ways that can bring about healing um, like all those are, are such deeply spiritual things and in the midst of them uh, it's so difficult not to get caught up in the drudgery of it all uh, feeling like you're doing the same thing day after day after day and once you get a little distance from it I think you can begin to recognize how deeply formative those events are for everybody who's participating in it. Maybe that's why a lot of the music that came to mind as I was working on these episodes was from Sesame Street. Mm. I mean, for one, Sesame Street, those people are just imagination people, and they're also about co cooperation in this little village and, you know, all the things that are Sesame Street, our beloved old friends of Ernie and Bert and Big Bird and snuffleupagus and all that kind of stuff but at the same time the songs that of are of my own childhood are now continue to be the songs of the children today and they're songs of care for each other and so maybe that's why that came up in my mind as something to include in these episodes okay so Amanda talked about Punky Brewster well actually I brought it up first because Amanda is basically like I mean, she is. She kind of is right. Punky Brewster. She's sort of like a sparkly, <laughs> Punky Brewster character, and I love Punky. Um, and so, for one, I'm embarrassed to say that I follow Salil Moon Fry on Instagram, and she has a treehouse in her backyard. Also, <laughs> the thing about um, Punky that I just want to mention here is that she, Punky Brewster, was a foster child who was raised by an elderly man. And then they made community in this little apartment complex and then at their school. And their community was diverse. And it was also a, kind of a simple living. They didn't have a whole lot of money. They were very resilient and resourceful with what they had. Um, 
and Punky was one of these very like she was an empath and she was really compassionate and always trying to make people get along and work together and then on top of that she was sort of the embodiment of awakening the imagination in that her room like the opening credits go from this like sort of boring room to this like colorful room and her bed is a what was it like a horse-drawn carriage trailer-ish type thing and then she had this really brightly colored um treehouse and that the dog got to have an elevator and all that kind of stuff it just like woke up the the mind to the possibilities and for years later i was drawing uh, floor plans of tree houses and imagining the possibilities of what that meant and i mean that all seems like really small and talking about what we watched when we were kids is a small thing but also i really do think that's very influential if you think about it Punky Brewster in the ideal life, if she had lived in her treehouse, she would have lived with a tree in the center of her life. And here I am. And that's you. Yeah. So um, anyway, when I talked to Amanda about that, um, some of those images and those colors, like the rainbow, bright pops of color, kind of came to mind in a lot of these different conversations. Katie talked about progressive family values. And... Um, and she said that it's not just the conservative that get to have family values, but it's the but it's everybody, and that um, kind of pointing out the places in which progressive have family values is important. Um, and I thought that was interesting. Like she is, she's reworking a narrative there, and she's not really like gone on this huge campaign about it. But that struck me as something that like she could totally run with. Yeah. Uh, particularly in light of the fact that um, the the values that are supposedly espoused by the so-called conservative movement are really the values that we see breaking down traditional communities across our society. Um, so when you think about conservatives, um, the, the the bastions of conservatism are in the suburbs, right? In the suburbs where. Uh, there's this fierce individualism where you have to rely on um, the gas companies the, and the oil companies to get you from place to place where people don't walk where they don't know one another um, and, and so these so-called traditional family values are really built around the lifestyles of very non-traditional neighborhoods and town settings uh, where everything is a consumer choice. And so th there's no historical continuity. This is not a conservative thing. Conservative has nothing to do with conservation or tradition at that point. Uh, and so, so those folks who identify with progressivism now are really more conservative in the sense of um, living in, in somewhat more traditional neighborhoods, of paying attention to the way that the choices they make affect their neighbors. Um, and whether those are choices of um, money and how they spend their money and where they spend their money or how they vote or uh, the ways that they move about from place to place, the modes of transportation they use, the attention to the common good of a society. Um, and so we've really seen the, the flipping of what used to be thought of as conservative family values in a lot of ways are, are much more deeply embodied by voters who are picking other political platforms than the so-called conservative one. Hmm. 
Well, what you're saying there, okay, one last pop culture reference. You know, I had this ridiculous moment when I watched all of Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. (laughs) (laughs) And we're glad that's over. (laughs) But one of the things about that was that all the comments are like, this is a family-friendly, pure um, television show. It's back to the old days when we could watch TV and it'd be good and that kind of stuff. But Dr. Quinn is the heroine. And she is always kind of like championing and winning, and you're always rooting for Dr. Quinn. I mean, no one is ever rooting for the ridiculous townspeople who are doing dumb things. But the ridiculous townspeople who are doing dumb things are doing some of the dumb things that we see in society oh, right sure. now. They represent law and order, right? right. And she's a bit of a rogue see, that doesn't you said play that by you the rules. not appreciate Dr. <laughs> Quinn, but you're talking about her right now. So that's what I'm saying is that the same people who are writing these comments, who are saying, Oh, we're just so glad there's something that we can, that's pure that we can watch. Yeah, well, yeah, so this is driven by identity politics, right? What they mean by pure is um, that Dr. Quinn was a settler, um, and she, she is racially pure in the way that uncritical white folks uh, think is important, and so they can accept her being a rogue, um, but they can't accept um, other they, they can't accept a black president for instance or um, a, a black Dr. King who moves against the law and order of a society because he recognizes that it's unjust uh, in its very foundation yeah I don't it's hard to I don't want to like super generic stereotype people but it does seem a little odd that someone would say it's like this is just back to the good old days when we could enjoy things when the good old days were about some of the things that these ridiculous town people were doing like they put on Ku Klux Klan outfits and Dr. Quinn and Sully you know saved the day by stopping them from doing their racist bigotry terrible terrorism or um, the townspeople got all confused and bumbled by banking and they got taken advantage of by the new banker in town and Dr. Quinn and Sully kind of saved the day from that too. And so if you're rooting for that on TV... (laughs) Right, but 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 then the structure of our society is built in favor of exactly the kind of highway robbery that the banks regularly participate in. Right. Right. But there's this resistance to, you know, they were too big to fail. They needed to be bailed out um, and so on. And and even beyond that, uh, that time during the financial crisis, like we continue to do business with those people um, despite the fact that we can see that they're exploiting us. Right. Yeah, so that part's a little tricky. I would, it, the other thing that's really interesting about that, and this kind of brings us back to the beginning of this whole thing we were talking about, like a movement for the decades current or beyond, you know, beyond just that. Because the things, this the show came out in 1993 and it lasted for six episodes, six seasons, I think, maybe seven. Well, Jump the Shark at season probably four or five. Anyway, so, um, but it went on for a long time. But it was in the late 90s, early 2000s. 
And some of the, a lot, most of the issues that they are working on, even if they're very specific or particular to supposed settler times are, or frontier times, are the exact same issues that are currently happening. Like, what does that mean? Yeah, well, surely some of it's about how art reflects life, right? But that also... That was 90s art. Right. They're, oh, they're the same issues that we're working on today. Yeah. Saying, well, I mean, so many of these things are, they're built into the structures, right? So the, the, the same racism that we're dealing with today is directly connected to settler colonialism, uh, which is evident in that particular show, but also in so many other, other things. So the fact that we, we've not actually dealt with it politically in, in systemic fashion and we've not dealt with it in our churches um, means that it's, it's going to continue coming out in pop culture and in art and in politics until we deal with the rot at the, at the foundation. Ah, you just named Dr. Quinn art. <laughs> oh goodness. Okay, this has been fun. Is there anything else that you want to talk about so far as these episodes are concerned? Not for now. Are there any current pop culture or books or quotes or things that you want to tell everybody to pay attention to? Mm. Well, uh, I'm reading, uh, rereading Thomas Merton's New Seeds of Contemplation, but that's not really pop culture. <laughs> definitely but not I would definitely pop recommend culture. it. <laughs> oh. Well, we did, wa- we did watch Wild Wild Country. We have one more episode to go. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. We were we were totally about um, developing a commune and a little village of abundance until we got to episode three. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought, wait, maybe we're just crazy and yeah. we're starting up a cult. <laughs> it would be interesting to think about all the different themes. One of the things that was so um, so interesting about that was that it, you never could figure out who you were rooting for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes so, you're yeah. rooting for the the townspeople in Antelope, is that what it was called? Uh-huh. And sometimes you're rooting for the commune, and sometimes you're rooting for the cops. Um, so it's just hard to figure out, like, what's 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 happening in this story? Yeah, and then also, like, who are we in the story? I don't know. Yeah, the story was about gentrification there for a while. The people, right! People of Antelope were, that were the settlers that were getting gentrified out of their place. <laughs> We still have to finish the last one to see what happens. Well, I don't know if it's the last one or not, but the last few to see what happens. All right, anything else we want to talk about? Not today. All right. And now a word from our neighbors. Raekwon, what's one thing that your grandmother taught you that you think is true? Never trust somebody on the first day that you meet. Why is that? Because everybody that I've ever met in my life is never the person I've met them on the first day. So, like, later on, once you meet them, they become somebody that you you, you know whether or not to trust them or not? Listen, I'm, I'm going to explain this the best way I can. Listen, you remember in Shrek, when Shrek said onions is like, onions is like people, it's people got layers. That's what it is. 
the more time you spend with those people, the more the, you dig into them layers, and then you find the core. Aha, I like it. Thanks for listening to Here for Good. Here for Good. Here for Good. Sponsored by QC Family Tree. 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 Here for Good. Here for Good. I was going to say, I don't want to say it anymore.